Hello and welcome to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, Ironman triathlete, and the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I have another great show for you today, and I'm excited to get started, but first I want to take a moment to thank all of you who have taken the time to leave me a rating or a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. For a new podcast, the best way for people to find me is for you to help me by getting the word out or by leaving those ratings and reviews. They really do help. On the show today, Janetta Iwanaki will be by for a top secret Reels for Wheels. Triathlon Canada Hall of Fame coach Lance Watson joins me to discuss the secrets to success for working with athletes of all levels and abilities who are occasionally challenged with injuries or, in some cases, lifelong chronic illnesses. But before all of that, I have a listener question to get to. As triathletes, we are used to training hard to get fast, but might we be missing something if we also aren't using the fast itself to get the goals we are looking to achieve? I look at the science behind an intriguing nutritional strategy for endurance athletes. Coming up. You are what you eat, the old saying goes. But what are you if you don't eat? I ask this as a means of introducing this episode's listener question that comes from Simon, who asks, what is the evidence to support the claims around intermittent fasting and athletic performance? Nutrition and diet strategies are two subjects where you're going to consistently find some of the most hyperbolic claims, whether or not it's related to triathlon or any other kind of athletic endeavor. It's also pretty common to find that the proponents of any given diet strategy will be not just a little bit enamored with it, but rather will proselytize with the fervor usually reserved for Sunday mornings on religious broadcast networks. With all that in mind, I was a little wary to accept Simon's challenge, but as I began to look at fasting specifically as a nutrition strategy, I was surprised to find some pretty interesting science behind the theory, even if the results are nowhere close to what you may have heard. Let's first consider why fasting might be a useful strategy. As I'm sure you know, the reason that we eat, besides the fact that it provides enormous pleasure, is that it also provides us with the energy that we need for all of our biological processes. Within our food are found the three main sources of that energy, sugars or carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. Now, our cells love carbohydrates first and foremost because they are fairly easy to metabolize, provide an excellent source of energy, and we have many ways to rapidly and efficiently use that energy in times of need. Think from anything for heart muscle contraction while at rest, right up to high-intensity aerobic exercise like swimming, running, or biking. Unfortunately, though, our bodies don't have a really good way of storing carbohydrates, and so we need to have secondary sources of energy, and these come from protein that is bound up in muscle or fat that is bound up in adipose tissue. With both of these fuels, we have chemical processes that utilize these substrates to actually make more molecules of sugar. But most tissues will just use the protein and fat unchanged in less efficient ways as primary fuels. Now, in this time of plentiful food, at least for many of us in the Western world, it may seem hard to believe, but the reality is that until recently, we humans did not have the luxury of always knowing where our next meal was coming from, nor when it might happen. It was only with the advent of industrial farming and food production, coupled with the ease of food transportation and effective means of storage, that cheap, readily accessible food became a reality on a daily basis. And by recent, I'm talking within the last 75 years. Before that, it wasn't uncommon to see widespread malnutrition throughout the population. 
Going back even further to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, meals were often very rare, and in order to survive, human societies had to adapt to long periods of food scarcity. As a species, we evolved to handle these challenges in various ways. Principally, our cells developed the means to make use of alternative fuels such as protein and fat, and to change their architecture and metabolic processes to do so more efficiently than they would normally. Now, This makes sense as a survival strategy, and is the principal theory behind the concept of modern-day fasting diets. By stressing the body with intermittent fasts, so the theory goes, we can trick our bodies into switching on those evolutionary survival processes that make the metabolism of alternative fuels, principally fatty acids, more efficient. This is an attractive theory to the long-distance endurance athlete, if it is true. In long-distance endurance events, we burn through our short supply of stored sugars very quickly, and if we are unable to refuel adequately, our bodies have to switch to using proteins and fats. Well, what if we primed our bodies through intermittent fasting to be ready for that moment when the switch occurred? It would intuitively make sense that a person who leveraged fasting to prime their utilization of fatty acids might then be better off than someone who didn't. Well, at least that's what we would hope. So what does the science say? Well, a lot of research has been done on the efficacy of intermittent fasting, and I needed to choose some of the many outcomes that have been looked at for this show. After careful consideration, I decided to report on intermittent fasting with respect to weight loss, health benefits, and performance in endurance sports. First and foremost, I need to explain a little bit about intermittent fasting itself. This term can refer to a whole host of differing protocols that can range from fasting on alternate days to fasting 20 hours a day every day. Most studies that I came across were pretty good at detailing their protocols for fasting, but I have to tell you that there is no one protocol that seems to be preferred by researchers. Now, that's not to say that they are all equivalent, only to say that I don't think there's been any compelling evidence showing any one protocol is clearly better than any other. I think it's also important to begin with a consideration of the large body of research that has been done in laboratory animals on intermittent fasting, important because the best quality studies have been done this way, and not unsurprisingly, when you have really good quality studies, you're also going to have the most compelling results. The effect on health that intermittent fasting has on lab animals is really quite astounding. I found numerous studies that showed this kind of eating pattern extended lifespan, dramatically decreased the frequency of diseases like cancer and diabetes, and protected against both cardiovascular and neurologic diseases. Now, it's very important to note that none of these findings have ever been shown in humans, for some reasons that are pretty easy to explain. First of all, lab animals tend to have pretty short lifespans, on the order of months, so it's fairly easy to do experiments that show effects on lifespan in a fairly brief period of time when the lifespan of the animals you're studying is fairly brief itself. You simply can't do that on humans who have lifespan of 70 to 80 years. As for all the disease effects, it's possible that the same issue related to the accelerated timeline that a lab animal has will also show effects in disease occurrence more clearly and rapidly than you would see in the very long lifespan that a human has. But I think there's probably more to it than just that, and there's probably another explanation as well. Mice, even lab mice, are still evolutionarily in a place where being faced with abundant food is not normal to them. Living in a lab with an endless source of food tends to result in mice who are overfed and therefore encumbered with all of the ailments that the overfed mouse tends to be afflicted with. Intermittently feeding these mice may simply be returning them to their native state. In other words, it may not be that intermittent feeding protects against disease, but that the constant feeding seen in lab mice 
may actually be causing disease. Still, these findings are potentially extremely interesting and really should be considered. Now, other lab animal studies have shown equally impressive results with respect to weight loss and body composition. Essentially, lab animals who are intermittently fasted have less fat and less body weight overall. Of particular interest is that animals who are intermittently fasted don't tend to gorge themselves on the days that they eat. Their total calorie intake is significantly less than those animals who eat continuously, and it is this fact that seems to account in the findings of lower body fat and overall weight. Finally, lab animals who are intermittently fasted show changes in their muscle structure that allows them to better metabolize fatty acids, and because of this, they are better able to perform on treadmill tests. Yes, they actually have wee little treadmills for mice. That alone, I think, is worth considering. I digress. So all of this is really compelling and very exciting. After reading all of this, I was ready to begin fasting myself. However, you do have to be extremely careful in interpreting the results of lab animal studies. First of all, lab studies are rigorously controlled and simply do not accurately reflect the real world. In the lab, the scientist has complete control over all of the parameters of the study. They control everything. If it is determined that an animal is to be fasted on Tuesday, you can be darn sure that the animal will be fasted on Tuesday. There will be no clandestine Krispy Kreme run for donuts. There will be no cheats in the way of just one goo. In the real world, of course, with real people as subjects, things are rarely that well controlled, and so the results are rarely that predictable or that finely tuned as we saw in some of these big lab studies. Also, in the real world, we're dealing with humans and not mice, so there's that small detail as well. Knowing all that, what about all of the human trials looking at intermittent fasting? Have they shown the same kind of compelling results that we saw with lab animals? Well, first and foremost, as I mentioned before, no trials to date have shown any beneficial effects whatsoever related to intermittent fasting and those significant health effects I mentioned earlier. There have been signs pointing to positive metabolic changes that might mean some benefits with respect to diabetes resistance, specifically in overweight adults, but nothing has been shown definitively. Some of this might have to do with the studies simply not being done for long enough. Some of it might have to do with the studies being too small. But there have been some longer studies and there have been some larger studies. But uh, the real issue seems to be that people honestly just have a hard time sticking to the plan. And I'm going to come back to this later. With respect to weight loss, several human trials have been done and it appears that intermittent fasting may be a viable diet strategy specifically for overweight adults to lose weight. Now, please note the two caveats here, may and for overweight adults. In those particular people, it appears that intermittent fasting has some promise to help with those folks lose some weight, at least initially. For adults who are closer to their normal weight, this strategy has not been shown to be particularly effective. Furthermore, even for the overweight folks, it's not clear if this is a viable long-term strategy to keep weight off, but it does seem to have some promise in terms of short-term weight loss. In active individuals who use intermittent fasting, this strategy may actually have some negative effects. In one study where adults were doing strength training while employing this nutrition strategy, there was no difference in weight loss when compared to a cohort who ate normally. But the intermittent fasters gained less muscle mass than the people who ate normally. Both groups seemed to have the same strength, though, when they were tested, despite the fact that those who were fasting didn't put on as much lean muscle mass. Finally, that brings us to the big question, and the one that we're really most interested in as triathletes, and that is, does intermittent fasting affect performance in endurance sport? And the answer here appears to be yes 
and no, and not in the ways you would hope. Several studies have shown that fasting impairs the ability to perform endurance exercise during the fast. That is to say, while fasting, this doesn't really help you ride a bike for a long time. That kind of makes sense. Fasting has also been shown to negatively impact the ability to perform high-intensity efforts. Again, this pretty much is what we would expect and does, in fact, make sense. At the end of a period of intermittent fasting, when compared to a group who ate normally, and if both groups eat before an effort, both of those groups perform comparably at both endurance and high-intensity efforts. However, the intermittent fasting group tends to make use of fatty acids as their primary fuel, while the normal eaters rely more on carbohydrates. So parts of the theory that I talked about at the very beginning of this segment are indeed being borne out. That is to say, intermittent fasting does indeed have effects on the body, resulting in changes in how fuels are used. However, this does not seem to be resulting in any notable improvement in performance, at least none that have been seen in the experiments that I have reviewed. So essentially, despite all of the research done on this topic, we still don't really have a great answer. And I'm afraid given the number of people who have looked at this, we aren't really likely to find anything truly earth-shattering at this point. If there was something really dramatic to be found, we should have seen it by now. The fact is, I think there's just something else going on here, and I came across it in several of the studies that I read, and I realized it when I thought to myself, how would I implement this intermittent fasting if I chose to do so? And the simple fact is that intermittent fasting is just not that easy. Consider the fact that many of the studies that compared normal eating to intermittent fasting saw many of the participants in the fasting group drop out. In those cases, the dropouts reported that fasting was simply too difficult. In the weight loss study that I referred to earlier, participants said that fasting was very difficult for two weeks and became mostly tolerable only after four. But even then, they always remained hungry during the periods that they fasted. Now imagine yourself during your normal day. You're pretty much continuously confronted with food. You see it, you smell it, it's available to you almost everywhere whether or not you want it. My goodness, I have trouble staying away from food even when I'm not fasting. Now imagine if you were fasting every second day, or worse, imagine if you were fasting 16 or 20 hours of every day. Could you manage? I'm not at all ashamed to admit that I could not. And then there's the reality of your work life. Take me, for example. I work shifts. Today, I work a day shift. In a couple of days, it's an evening shift, and then an overnight. How exactly would I manage my training schedule and my eating schedule to work in fasting and still be fed well enough to do my job and everything else that is required of me? Again, I don't think that me personally, this would be something that I would be able to do. However, I will you know, admit to the fact that most people have a much more normal schedule than I do, and maybe those people have significantly more willpower than I do as well. In that case, maybe you want to give this intermittent fasting thing a try. If you do, I would say that you need to take into account a couple of important considerations. First of all, don't skip the water. When fasting, fluids are allowed. Just make those fluids calorie-free. Similarly, Caffeine is okay. You're being asked to fast, not become an ascetic. Giving up coffee and fasting would clearly be too much. I can't even bear the thought. I think I actually just shuddered at the thought. Okay, quickly, let's move on. Talk to your coach if you have one. She or he will want to make sure that your training lines up with your new diet. If you are alternate day fasting, workouts on those days need to be relatively short and easy. 
If you are doing daily fasting with an eating window, make sure your heavy training lines up with when you are fed and your easier training with when you are fasted. Most importantly, let me know how it goes. I think that this area of research is really interesting and I would give it a try if I could. My job simply makes it too difficult. Now, as always, all of the research that I summarized in this episode will be available in the show notes in their reference forms and will link to the original articles. Do you have a question that you'd like me to consider for answering on the show? Well, please send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Fifteen years ago, as a still wet behind the ears newcomer to triathlon, I had the opportunity to attend my first ever triathlon camp in Colorado Springs. The few days that I spent there proved to be very important in my young career as a triathlete because of the things that I learned and because of the relationships that I made with some of the attendees, some of whom I am still in contact with today. One of the coaches at that camp is my guest on the podcast today. When I met him, I was amazed to learn what a wealth of knowledge this humble, quiet, and affable man was, and even more astonished to find out that he was my age and already tremendously accomplished and renowned in the triathlon world as a highly sought-after coach. His coaching career extends over 30 years now, and he has coached at the Olympics and all the major world championships. His athletes have won Olympic gold and more than 30 Ironman titles. A five-time Triathlon Canada Coach of the Year, he co-founded Canada's National Triathlon Centre, and in 2004, he started Life Sport Coaching, where he leads a North America-wide endurance coaching group, working with athletes in over 40 countries worldwide. In 2015, he was inducted into Triathlon Canada's Hall of Fame, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Lance Watson to the podcast. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time today, Lance. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for the uh, lovely introduction. <laughs> uh, so, Lance, um, I, growing up in Canada, coming to triathlon uh, when I was still living there and following all of the Canadian athletes at that time, I was very familiar with the work of Lisa Bentley and did not realize until very recently that she did the phenomenal uh, accomplishments that she did uh, while she was living with cystic fibrosis. So I am fascinated to know because I encounter a lot of people in my line of work and also amongst friends who have uh, chronic diseases, not necessarily CF, but other chronic uh, illnesses that uh, they feel limits them or feels keeps them back from performing at a high level. And yet Lisa is an example of someone who was able to accomplish uh, tremendous things. And I'm wondering as a coach, how you were able to work with someone like that to adapt her training and racing to have her get to the kind of success that she did. Oh yeah. And Lisa was, uh, is, it was in, is an incredible woman. Um, you know, uh, first of all, Lisa always, uh, defined herself as, um, someone with cystic fibrosis who gets to be an elite athlete as opposed to looking at as, um, you know, a hindrance or something that was holding her back. So she was always really grateful for her career. And I think that attitude, drove a lot of her success. Um, that coupled with, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've had the good fortune of working with a lot of great athletes and Lisa is probably the hardest working athlete I've ever coached. Um, there, she just was, um, relentless in her determination and it was coupled with, uh, just a deep passion for what she had to do, uh, day in and day out. Um, you know, I, I will say behind the scenes, um, she did. I mean, she had a great, uh, a great, great career. She podiumed in Hawaii. She won eleven 
Ironman races, um, you know, in an era where there wasn't one every weekend <laughs> and they were, they were quite a bit harder to win. I mean, it's, it's still an incredible accomplishment, obviously to win an Ironman, but, um, back then everybody would show up because there just weren't that many. And, um, and was one of the truly uh, great runners of the sport and maybe the top uh, 70.3 athlete in the world for a stretch of about two years um, as well. And so, uh, you know, passion and hard work. Um, she was very coachable. Um, she would um, always, uh, you know, want to share and understand the, the purpose of her workouts. Um, she also was a, a real um um, true believer in the power of mental preparation and, and mental training. And we spent a lot of time, um, working on mental rehearsal and visualization and, um, and, um, debriefing. And one of her favorite stories, um, was a, uh, a, a long brick workout I gave her one year where, um, basically it was a five hour ride followed by uh, about an hour run. And, um, you know, she reported after that, uh, you know, she got through it, but the weather wasn't great and she was, you know, in a bad mood and, and, you know, wasn't on task and that. And, uh, so I had her do the same workout two days later and I was honest with her. I said, there's no physiological reason for doing this, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we're, but we're going to do it, um, um, to work on, um, you know, shifting attitude and focus, um, in these long sessions and, you know, the, the cliche attitude of gratitude and, um, you know, that, that lesson stuck with her and she carried that. If you ever saw her race, she always smiled on the marathon and she, she found a lot of power in that. She always created these themes around the races of, um, you know, absorbing positive energy from the people cheering and the volunteers and that, and, um, that carried her a long way too. Um, but the other thing I would say, uh, Jeff is that, um, you know, um, she probably only got to Hawaii healthy, you know, two or three times in her career. Uh, she, you know, when she would get sick, she would go down, um, sometimes for three or four months. Um, it was quite arduous. I mean, she had to, you know, avoid germs <laughs> at, at all costs. And, um, you know, there were trips to the hospital and, um, you know, IV antibiotics and, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I remember, um, a story of her last win of her career. I was with her in the Philippines and, um, it was the last year she raced at a high level. And, and, um, you know, a couple of days before the race, I, I just remember her and her husband, Dave, uh, in the ocean, you know, knee deep. Um, and she was coughing, coughing, coughing. And Dave was standing beside her and pounding her back and trying to clear her lungs. And, um, that was just, you know, that was just Lisa, you know, I mean, that was just one of the things that she had to do to get ready to race, you know, as part of her preparation. Wow. So, you know, I imagine the mental toughness that someone like that has to have. And I mean, anytime you're living with a chronic illness, you have to have that because you're always going to be facing these kinds of setbacks. But when it's your livelihood and it really has that kind of impact, uh, it's really got to set you back. So how did she kind of, or how did you work with her to come up with the mental resilience to always be able to just, you know, take what, you know, take the days that, you know, the good days that, that she would get. And then if she had to miss Kona or whatever it was to, to be able to just, you know, shift the focus and come back and, and not be too adversely affected by it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to take full coaching credit for that. Um, but you know, a lot of it was innate. Um, 
a lot of it was a developed attitude as well. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, she, she felt grateful for what she was able to do rather than focusing on what she wasn't able to do. And, you know, a lot of times she would just show up and um, race sick because that's just, you know, the cards she was dealt uh, for that particular event and she would take what she got. And fortunately she was a good enough athlete that that still typically resulted in, um, you know, a, a good finish. Uh, but the other thing, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it really is an interesting testament in uh, mind over matter because, because she might be working on um, varying levels of lung functioning capacity, <laughs> depending on the time of the year. Um, she had to really tap into uh, every other tool in the, uh, you know, in the mental toolkit to find ways to be successful on a race course. So whether it was being tactically smarter, um, whether it was being, you know, courageous um, at, in a really hard part of the race, um, whether it was dealing with the heat better that day, um, you know, those those were those were her mental assets that helped her overcome um, some of her her physical challenges. Yeah, and I think you also said to me at one point, you know, she didn't let herself be defined by her illness. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just part of who she was, but it certainly didn't define her. And I, I know that for so many people who are dealing with chronic illness, that's a big issue for them, is, is making sure that it doesn't come to define them. It's just in the background. That's right. And Well, you know, early in her career, she actually didn't really want it to be known that she had CF. Um, she wanted to be known as an elite athlete and to be respected and renowned for her, you know, work work in the field of play. And um, I actually really encouraged her over the years to uh, embrace that um, as part of her character that you know that she had CF and to talk about it because um, you know it, it it provided hope and inspiration for other people who were dealing with that challenge and. Um, you know, ultimately, she became a spokesperson for cystic fibrosis, and um, and I think that uh, you know she would um, she would seek treatment at St. Michael's in um, Toronto quite regularly. And I know that in some ways it had them rethink about how they actually dealt with people with cystic fibrosis. I think the historical indication would be don't exercise, protect your lungs, and. Um, they felt that actually being an athlete helped her maintain some level of um, lung functioning capacity. Right. So, you know, interesting on a number of levels. And um, and then, you know, I also remember one year when she won in New Zealand, um, she connected with a family who had children um, with, with CF and she finished the race with a, you know, a little boy. This is in the days when you could finish with somebody and with a little boy who uh, had CF and, you know, just provided a lot of heart and inspiration for that family and helped raise some funds for them as well too. So, so some really beautiful stories along the way. Yeah. She, she's a terrific story. A great inspiration. Yeah. So, um, as a coach who works with so many top level athletes, uh, I'm curious, how much do you think, I mean, this is something that I hear amongst triathletes. I, I know I, personally have dealt with this question myself. How much do you think is nature versus nurture? I mean, how, how much potential do you think every person brings to the sport and how much is a limitation just by virtue of their genetics? 
Well, Jeff, I know personal excellence is a little bit of a cliche, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that there is a, a common string there, and um, and the other cliche is uh, you know choose your parents well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, uh, th- there's there's a huge genetic component to being an elite elite athlete for sure. Um, you know, as a coach, I often wonder how many uh, how many uh, Yan Fredenos or Simon Whitfields are out there who've never actually tried triathlon. Who, right, uh, right. Maybe had the right parents, but um, just never discovered the sport. Um, but um, you know, the interesting thing in an endurance and ultra endurance um, event is that um, hard work and discipline and self belief and structure uh, go a long, long way as well. And I know there have been a lot of hardworking athletes who've had a lot more success than some of the naturally gifted ones. Um, Endurance sport is interesting because you really can adapt your body long-term to the demands of it, and you can can change the way that you're built, um, and you can have some some permanent physiological uh, changes. Uh, through you know repeated uh, annual stress and recovery and stress and recovery, so um, the short answer to your question is uh, you know athletes who are middling who um, have perhaps not uh, explored their full potential could have a, a lot of um, upward movement as far as what they're able to um, output, uh, but we're we're all going to have. Uh, you know, a tough time making it to the, um, you know, the, the Peter Reed, uh, Avier Gomez kind of level. <laughs> sure. Sure. Like yeah. the, the ceiling is not going to be the same for everyone, but Correct. Mm-hmm. with hard work, you're going to be surprised to see how high your ceiling actually is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it, it can be a really interesting experiment for somebody to, um, yeah, you know, if they can carve out the time in life to go a little bit more, you know, all in on their sport and explore, you know, not just the fundamentals of uh, swim, bike, run and basic periodization, but to really try and understand the sports nutrition, um, to understand the strength and conditioning, uh, the, the mental elements, um, to really dig in on the, um, you know, the technical uh, aspects and then, you know, understand your personal assets of um, strengths and areas for improvement uh, within the different energy systems within each sport as well. And yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's it's a fun journey. Yeah, yeah, it, de- it definitely is. I, I've seen that myself. Um, I'm curious, as a coach, if you're following your athletes' workouts, uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of athletes are very bad at telling their coaches about injuries they might be, uh, you know, suffering from on the down low. Are, are you able to see that by looking at their uh, workouts and sort of tracking them? Do you or do you get a suspicion? Well, it's interesting, Jeff, because, um, and it's a great question, different athletes um, will communicate pain or injury in different ways. Um, and, and by that, I mean, there will be some athletes who, uh, are always, you know, communicating that I have this or I have that, or, you know, uh, I don't feel good here or there. And, and then as a coach, you're almost forced to sift through the noise right. <laughs> and see what's valid and what's just, you know, I'm tired or, you know, a little niggly. Um, sounds, that they, sounds a lot like being a parent. 
yeah, yeah. It, it, well, yeah. in some ways, uh, you know, I, it's an interesting thing because um, when you when you look at elite athletes, um, in in some ways they they make a career spend a spend a, a lifetime learning how to deal with pain and how to. Uh, you know, shift their um, continuum on what is actually painful and what isn't painful. And you'll see examples of athletes, you know, passing out near the finish line of a, a race. And it's because, you know, it's almost like their calibrator's broken. They, they can, they can go so deep. Um, so, you know, you take that kind of a personality and you have them trying to assess whether, you know, something they're feeling when they're training is, you know, um, just a little bit of pain or if it's actually injurious, uh, that that's, that can be a challenge as a coach as well. And, you know, so you'll have, um, some athletes who just love to train so much that they actually, uh, you know, won't quite be on the up and up on, um, what's, what's setting them back. So some of the things you can look for, um, you know, it's a lot of it comes out in, uh, conversation and just mining for information. Um, you know, so you feel what, where, and and on a scale of one to ten, and how persistent have you had, have you had it before? And you know, I, I guess I'm putting on your hat right now, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's actually it's one of the great things of um, you know working with athletes at a distance with um, Skype and and or video conferencing is you can say you know point to it and you know when you do what and and that kind of a thing. So. Um, and yeah, how much so, do you want to know? I mean, do do you want to know when? Because uh, it sounds like, like you said, there could be a lot of noise. But I, I'm assuming mm-hmm. at some point you do want to know. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, my general cl- uh, coaching philosophy is quite holistic, and um, you know, you're you're trying to put all the variables of their, of their life um, on the table. Um, you know, whether it's some levels of fatigue or um, you know. Um, chronic sore spots that you've seen before or if it's something new and often I'll try to communicate to my athletes you know um, there are a few aches and pains that you just work through that's just part of being an endurance athlete especially if you're pushing hard you know you're you're almost trying to push your body hard enough um, to cause you know stress and and require um, rest and compensation, um, you're taking yourself to the edge of injury, but not over the edge. Right. So it's you know it's what can your body take without breaking down essentially, yeah. and that's you know that's how you stress your body and force it to adapt, and you get faster. So one final question, and it again pertains to injury, and this is a question that I know a lot of people struggle with. You know, they have an injury, it's limiting their ability to train effectively, and yet they are they just cannot fathom taking time off. You know, so many age group triathletes view taking time off as a sign of weakness, or they fear the detraining. And I'm curious, as a coach. Do you, you know, what's, what do you encourage? Do you encourage training through the injury at a lesser level of intensity or taking the time off to heal properly so that they can maximize their training time and actually train effectively? Well, one of the uh, fabulous things about triathlon is there are three sports. <laughs> yeah, true. So a lot of times there's opportunity um, in an injury to work on another element of your game. And Generally, when I periodize for an athlete and I try and think about developing them in the long term, I'll try and create emphasis phases for them anyway, where we will dial back the other two sports and 
focus on one of their areas of need. So you may have the opportunity to do an emphasis phase um, due to injury, and in the long term, that can help you. So there is that for sure. Um, I like to try and catch something early if possible, uh, because my general observation is it's you know better to take a week or 10 days off of something than be forced to take two or three months off. Uh, you do run into trouble sometimes if you're coaching an athlete uh, and they're getting quite close to their A race, you know, perhaps their Ironman or um, their world championship or, or that kind of a thing where then you're trying to think about how can I manage the injury, uh, which may be less volume or stripping it down to, um, you know, core energy systems. Um, you know, for instance, if you had a run injury, you might warm up on the bike and then, you know, do the main set of the run and then cool down on the bike to reduce uh, pounding. Um, or, um, you know, you try and find something complimentary and you, you do that. So it may be you know, water running or, um, you know, elliptical or something like that, you know, in the short term, just to stay in contact with um, that particular uh, demand. Yeah. But generally, rest is best and uh, go see your doctor. Yes. Yes. It's important. <laughs> Keep us in business. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Lance Watson is a five-time Triathlon Canada Coach of the Year. He uh, co-founded Canada's National Triathlon Centre and is the head coach at Life Sport Coaching. I thank him so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much, Lance. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You look at your workout schedule and see a two-hour ride that because of the weather will have to be done on the trainer. You aren't a huge fan of Zwift, none of your Sufferfest videos really fit the bill, but you don't care because you know that the TriDoc podcast has you covered. That's right, Janetta Iwanaki is back to join me for Reels for Wheels, the segment where we bring you our suggestions for movies to watch to make those long rides on the trainer not just bearable, but enjoyable. Welcome once again, Janetta. Thanks for having me. So we've covered a lot of ground on the shows that we have recorded to date. We have visited post-apocalyptic worlds in Mad Max Fury Road, superhero wannabes in Kick-Ass, and pooch-morning car-thief revenge flicks like John Wick. Today, though, for the first time, we found ourselves with a bit of a theme. Both of us have landed on films that are not only part of a series, but are also part of the same chapter in the reboot of the series. And that series is the longest-running franchise in movie history, the James Bond film series. Now, while there may be some argument about who the best actor to ever play the British super spy was, the argument really begins and ends with Sean Connery. However, the debate and the series itself began anew with the introduction of Daniel Craig in the titular role in 2006. And with that introduction, I'll turn it to you to give us your recommendation for this episode. Absolutely. So I grew up on James Bond, and I have to admit, I agree that Sean Connery is by far and away the person who I think of when I think of James Bond. That being said, I think the uh, spectacular action films that have come with the Daniel Craig era uh, really lend themselves even better to uh, trainer rides, despite my deep love for Sean Connery. Um, and so I'll be uh, chatting a bit about uh, Casino Royale today, uh, his Daniel Craig's first turn as uh, James Bond, and I think really the first introduction of this new version um, where it was this deeply intense action style um, that I really appreciate on the trainer. 
So Casino Royale uh, really starts over with James Bond and gives us an introduction to right when he first becomes a double O agent uh, with his first two kills where we sort of see where he comes into the scene. Um, and we get to see him make his transition from being uh, what M refers to as a blunt instrument to something perhaps slightly more sophisticated, but still fairly blunt. Um, I really love the action in this film. I still think that uh, there is this spectacular chase scene um, where the actor that Daniel Craig is chasing throughout this uh, construction, throughout Madagascar, is uh, he's actually, I believe, a trained parkour yes. um, athlete. Yeah. And it is stunning. Um, and really, for me, that was what really drew me into that uh, first Daniel Craig movie. Um, I was shocked by how much I enjoyed it the first time I saw it, way back when it came out. And I find myself returning to it on the trainer um, more than once. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the other things that kind of um, make this movie hold up... Um, First and foremost, the Bond girl, Eva Green. Uh, she's awesome. I mean, she's phenomenal. And for the first time in really any Bond movie, uh, she holds her own. I mean, the mm-hmm. dialogue that she's given, uh, that scene on the train where mm-hmm. they first meet. I mean, that right there shows you that this is not going to be uh, your typical Bond movie from mm-hmm. the past. This is a new generation. So you're telling me it's a matter of probability and odds. I was worried there was some chance involved. Well, any of you have seen the play with the best hand wins. So that will be what you call bluffing. You've heard the term. Then you'll also know that in poker you never play your hand. You play the man across from you. And you're good at reading people. Yes, I am. Which is why I've been able to detect an undercurrent of sarcasm in your voice. I'm now short on money isn't good hands. You don't think this is a very good plan, do you? So there is a plan. I got the impression we were risking millions of dollars and hundreds of lives on a game of luck. What else can you surmise, Mr. Bond? About you, Miss Lind? Well, your beauty's a problem. You worry you won't be taken seriously. Which one can say of any attractive woman with half a brain? True, but this one overcompensates by wearing slightly masculine clothing, being more aggressive than her female colleagues, which gives her a somewhat prickly demeanor. And ironically enough, makes it less likely for her to be accepted and promoted by her male superiors who mistake her insecurities for arrogance. Now, I'd have normally gone with only child, but, um... You see, by the way you ignored the quip about your parents, I'm going to have to go with orphan. All right. By the cut of his suit, you went to Oxford or wherever naturally think human beings dressed like that. But you were it with such disdain. My guess is you didn't come from money, and your school friends never let you forget it. Which means you were at that school by the grace of someone else's charity, hence the chip on your shoulder. And since your first thought about me ran to orphan, that's what I'd say you are. Well, you are. <laughs> I like the spoke thing. And that makes perfect sense. Since MI6 looks for maladjusted young men, I give little thought to sacrificing others in order to protect queen and country. You know, former SAS types with easy smiles and expensive watches. Rolex? Amiga. Beautiful. Now, having just met you, I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine 
You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed hearts. You noticed. Even accountants have imagination. How was your lamb? Skewered. One sympathizes. The other thing is the villain, uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Um, yeah. Le Chiffre. I mean, not your typical uh, megalomaniacal, you know, you know, wants to take over the world in your classic way, in, the, in his evil lair. Yeah. No, he's doing it in the typical capitalistic, uh, I'm going to, you know, run the stock market type yeah. of thing, and I'm financing bad guys in, in, you know, the third world. Granted, the scar and the crying blood is kind of Bond villain-esque, <laughs> yes, but still, true. I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, and there were, you know, I, he doesn't deliver his famous line, you know, uh, Bond, James Bond, until the very last mm-hmm. couple of seconds of the movie. Um, so really a lot of things where they really turn Bond on its head. Um, Judi Dench really gets to come out as M for the first time, although she's been playing the role for many uh, films in a row, Mm -hmm. uh, going back to the Pierce Brosnan days. This is the first time, I think, that she really gets to do the the role justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I agree. And and the scenery, of course. I mean, they always Absolutely. pick the, the nicest places. And uh, you know, the movie is replete with uh, all kinds of uh, beautiful people. And the story is great. I mean, it really takes an arc that goes all over the place from you know the the threat to the 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 prototypical the prototype plane, and then you know going all over the world and 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 the story really takes you and sets up well for the the subsequent movies that come along so i agree and and just a fun movie to to definitely and what kind of trainer rides do you like this one for um i like it for long steady rides actually because that action is so steady throughout um that i find that really i could do most anything with it but long steady rides are kind of my favorite yeah and I, i have i have a couple of female friends who would uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that they, they enjoy looking at James Bond in this movie. So uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, though, just a moment on Ava Green. She is spe- a spectacular actress who I think really um, brings a depth to her character that uh, is... I think somewhat unusual for previous Bond movies um, as far as some of those female characters go. And she goes, she's gone on to do some really interesting work. Um, And I would say that's sort of her theme is she's often plays these beautiful women who have a lot of depth, a lot of intelligence and uh, oftentimes many other hidden layers. And so I think, you know, she does that spectacularly and um, really kind of brings those acting chops to the table. Well, and the knock on, the subsequent Bond films has been that her character and her uh, her character's effect on Bond mm-hmm. in this movie was so profound, and they've almost struggled with what to do with that later because yeah. it comes up in every film since then. Vesper's name is brought up, yeah. and I, I had to agree that you know, Inspector, a movie that I actually enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Vesper Lynn's name is brought up and there's like a, a reference to a videotape of her interrogation and Bond just kind of shrugs it off as if it means nothing to him and 
that kind of bothered me because you know that it yeah. does mean something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, I remember reading somewhere that there was, you know, a theory that the drink that he orders in the film and actually in the original Ian Fleming novel, The Vesper, um, the reason that he never goes on to order that drink again is because it brings up two intense memories of her. Um, yeah. And that's why he switches to his classic uh, martini. Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to the writers of the films exploring that a little bit more. I, yeah. You know, especially in this age, I, I think that, I mean, I, I, you know, given the response to, you know, things recently, I, I guess I, I can't say that, uh, you know, all men would probably act the same, but I, I personally, and I think a lot of the people I know would be okay with Bond showing that kind of humanity and yeah. his masculinity is not threatened, I think, by showing that kind of you know, vulnerability to that character. And I think there are a lot of veiled references to the fact that he's such a damaged human in so many different ways, especially in this new series, in a way that you don't see in the yeah. uh, original, you know, Sean Connery, Roger Moore yeah. era. Um, and I think, you know, it really opens the opportunity to have those discussions, but they just haven't taken it yet. Yeah. So my selection is another of the Craig Bond films, and that's Skyfall, which arguably a lot of people have said is the best Bond film ever. Um, Skyfall has everything. Um, I really like the introduction of the younger versions of Q and Moneypenny, uh, especially with Moneypenny being uh, black. Um, an, uh, an epic villain in the form of a spectacular Javier Bardem, and a story that is up-to-date and very entertaining. The action sequences are great. Uh, Craig brings... Uh, a darkness and vulnerability of age uh, to the character that we have not seen before. And one of the interesting things uh, about Skyfall, I think, is the absence of a true Bond girl. And I think that's quite deliberate. I believe that in this movie, the um, mother-son relationship is really what they're exploring. And that's between Bond and Judy Dench's M. And they really go all out there uh, right until the very end where um, we see the demise of... Um, uh, Judy Dench's character uh, in uh, Bond's, you know, true home of Skyfall. Um, I, I really, really enjoy this movie. I feel like every time I watch it, it reminds me how good it is and how good the acting is and the writing and uh, the action sequences, especially the beginning sequence where uh, Bond and Moneypenny are involved in this high-speed chase on a train and all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the sequences uh, through uh, London's underground where... Um, uh, Silver is making his escape from his uh, his uh, high security enclosure. So there, there's just a lot to like in this film. Uh, the introduction of Ralph Fiennes uh, as well as the new M for the subsequent films. Just um, really, really a great uh, a great film, and and led well into Spectre, which followed it, and um, made me very, very sorry that Craig was uh, going to be leaving the series, but I've, I've now been very encouraged that he's staying for at least one more film. So Skyfall, for me, is is, is my pick. And I, I will ride pretty much anything to watch that movie, yeah. but because of its pacing, I think it's better for longer, steady-state type rides. Yeah, and I think it's got that building intensity to it. Like, yeah, there are episodes of action throughout it, but it sort of escalates as it goes, which I think really 
pulls you into that final finale component of it. And so I think, I totally agree. I think long rides are great on it. Um, it's a fantastic movie. And one of the things I really love about it is some of the homages to the original old school. Bond. Oh yeah. Um, the moment where he opens that garage door to like reveal the old bond car and yeah. like you get the original bond theme music that comes in just, oh, yeah. it still makes me. Yeah. Gives me shivers. I love it. Yeah, or revealing the button for the ejector. That is also a classic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not hiding in there. Is that your brilliant plan? We're changing vehicles. Trouble with company cars is they have trackers. And I suppose that's completely inconspicuous. Get in. comfortable is it are you going to complain the whole way oh go on then eject me see if i can and i mean certainly the scenery is spectacular too just the scenery as they go through scotland there yeah. is gorgeous yeah oh. the shot of him standing in front of the moors yeah, next to the yeah. car with the mist over the 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 lock i yeah. mean yeah it's it's a very well shot film Absolutely. and uh a very very fitting uh, tribute to old bond and introduction to a lot of the new stuff and again uh did flow well into the next film specter and and you know in terms of opening sequences skyfall has a great opening sequence i think specter has a phenomenal opening sequence as yeah, well and that's true. Uh, they they you know the films the craig series have all flowed well into each other quantum of solace is the weak film of yeah. the three that he's been in uh, sorry the four that he's been in but uh, even that film is watchable but in terms of trainer rides i agree casino royale and uh, skyfall are probably the two best absolutely well, great. This has been a fun conversation, and uh, we hope you've enjoyed it as well. Thanks for being here again, Janetta, and we'll look forward to another episode on the next show. Yeah, looking forward to the next trainer ride. And that's it for this episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Thanks, as always, to my guests, Lance Watson and Janetta Iwanaki, for being here. If you enjoyed the show, I hope that you will consider leaving me a rating and a review on whatever platform you get this podcast. Those really do help. References to all of the science in the first segment, as well as links to everything else I talked about, can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you have comments or a question that you would like me to consider for answering on a future episode, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. The music at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many more like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will go and give small independent bands a chance. Like James Bond, the TriDoc Podcast will return. Until then, train hard, train healthy.